Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tanzania's Public Works Minister John Magufuli has been nominated as the ruling party Chamacha Mapinduzi's presidential candidate. Magufuli got 87% of the total votes cast during the party's National Congress. 55-year-old Magufuli beat two female contenders, former senior UN Undersecretary General Dr. Asha Rose Migiro and African Union Ambassador to the United States Amina Salum Ali. Magufuli, a no-nonsense economist known to have a zero-tolerance policy to corruption, will battle it out against the opposition as President Jakayam Kikwete's successor. Kikwete is due to retire this October after serving two terms. Sarah Kimani reports from Dodoma where the CCM Party Congress was held. Came to an end with a resounding victory for John Magufuli, the country's public works minister. CCM nominations involve cutthroat competition, political maneuvering, and canvassing. A bruising battle that this time threatened to split the party as a man seen as a front runner, former Prime Minister Edward Lowassa, was dropped in the first round. Magufuli will have to first unite the party if he is to carry the day on the big stage, the general elections. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing to nominate me and appoint me as your servant. I promise I will not let you down, says Magufuli. He is credited with having fought corruption within the ministries that he has worked for and most recently as public works minister Magufuli is said to have managed to improve the country's road network. Here he received an endorsement from party chairman and outgoing president Jakaya Kikwete. He is hardworking, no nonsense, has zero tolerance to corruption, and likes to get things done. I'm assured the delegates made the right choice for the party and for Tanzania, concluded Kikwete. During the Congress, the party also unveiled his running mate, Samia Suluhu. Should CCM win the October polls, Suluhu will be Tanzania's first female vice president. With 6 million members out of a possible 23 million eligible voters, the ruling party has a head start of a fractured opposition. Magufuli may well be on course to be Tanzania's fifth president. Sarah Kimani, Dodoma, Tanzania. Women in South Sudan are bearing the brunt of the ongoing conflict in the country, according to the head of the UN agency focusing on gender issues. Fighting in South Sudan, which has been celebrating the fourth anniversary of its independence, started in December 2013. Around one and a half million people have been displaced by the conflict. Pumzilim Lambongnuka, executive director of UN Women, recently visited the country and praised women there for their resilience and determination. Lord Nielsen has a story. The visiting executive director of UN Women is asking the government to do more to address women's and girls' issues. Pumzile Mlambogoka urged for more protection of women and children from gender-based violence, especially in conflict. She noted the resilience of women and children to make their voices heard. I am uh, encouraged by the resilience of the women of South Sudan and their determination to push for peace through their engagement in peace talks, their advocacy using the comprehensive agenda for peace. 
As UN women, we are, however, concerned that women and children are bearing the brunt of the conflicts in this country. On reports of sexual and gender-based violence by armed forces against women, Ms. Pomzile is urging the government to investigate and hold the perpetrators accountable. Reports of sexual and gender-based violence are indeed very heart-wrenching. The protection of women and girls from violations such as sexual and gender-based violence is not optional. It is a necessity. It is a prerequisite for peace. The executive director also reiterated the importance of raising women's full participation in peace and security and gender mainstreaming in peace building and humanitarian response. Recognizing that uh, we do have the big challenge of violence against women and girls, we discuss the importance of women peace and security, the importance of implementing resolution 1325 and implementing a national action plan that addresses these challenges of violence against women. We also discussed the need for education to be tackled quite seriously, addressing both adult literacy as well as uh, access to education for girls and ensuring that girls stay at school longer. She says she leaves the country with mixed feelings. That report by UN Radio's Lork Nelson in South Sudan. South Africa's Speaker of Parliament, Balek Ambete, says she is optimistic that the SADC Heads of States and Government Summit to be held in Khaboroni next month will debate the formation of a regional parliament. She was speaking at the end of the 37th Plenary Assembly of the Southern African Development Community Parliamentary Forum in Balito, KwaZulu-Natal. The formation of a SADC parliament, migration, the need to end child marriages and climate change were some of the topics discussed at the week-long forum held under the theme Industrialization for SADC Regional Development and Integration Role of Parliament. Mbete says she is happy with the outcome of their deliberations. The 37th SADC Parliamentary Forum Plenary Assembly has done its work. Uh, We had our committee reports starting with the executive committee of which I'm also a member to actually lead the plenary assembly in terms of the business which in fact emanates from the forum's uh, mandate. So I'm very happy with the way things went. We had very robust debates on you know different subjects starting with the content of different reports Uh, whether they be how far we are with transformation from the parliamentary forum to the regional parliament. And there, I must say, we're very optimistic. Uh, We believe that it should be uh, possible that the Heads of State Summit, which will sit in Haburoni in August, will debate the matter of the regional parliament because SADC is the only region that does not have a parliament, a fully-fledged parliament. And the actual existence of the parliament is what's required at AU level in order for us 
to properly relate to the Pan-African Parliament. And therefore, we really have done the best we could as parliaments and uh, representatives of people in the SADC area. We feel good. We think that uh, we feel that we are moving forward as SADC. What lessons can South Africa draw from some of the deliberations that took place? You know, there are subject matters about which perhaps as South Africans we are only beginning to open our minds and understand the importance of the issues that are at stake. I will, for instance, talk about how our people in the SADC region, for instance, the island states, uh, have actually embraced the idea of a blue economy, which means that is conceiving and conceptualizing of economic activity based on the oceans that surround us. But at the same time, as the debate went, we realized that there are issues that are catching up with us which relate to climate change with uh, possibilities of rising oceans and the implications of that even if it's maybe millions of years from now but these are matters as leaders in our countries that we must begin to grapple with so there are those issues that say to us as citizens maybe we are sitting around like we have all the time in the world and yet in fact there are many issues that we all should grapple with. There are issues of uh, dealing with early marriages, you know, child marriages to, to older people which in fact call on us to look at our legislative framework and to see whether there's something we can do to improve the situation and you know, the need to protect our girl children so that they are not married off when they are still young, when there's still a lot that they could do in terms of the futures that we have fought that they should be able to uh, enjoy as we move forward. And intertrade, how do you think we can increase that in the region? Without perhaps saying we got into very minute details. Yes, we have actually a standing committee that deals with issues of, of trade, uh, that deals with the needs in terms of a range of protocols or legal framework so that we can harmonize our policies, we can harmonize our understanding of issues and therefore how best we could improve the situation as we move into the future. South Africa's Speaker of Parliament, Balegambete, speaking to Ntlantla Matlangu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. 
A UN Ebola recovery pledging conference has exceeded its $3.2 billion goal for early recovery efforts in the three worst affected countries. The UN convened the recovery conference last Friday as the global efforts towards the crisis slowly begins to shift away from focusing on eradicating the virus to efforts of rebuilding economies, societies and cultures that were vastly affected by the scope and severity of the outbreak. They raised around $3.4 billion and what the UN Development Program Administrator Helen Clark called a preliminary figure for now. The earlier announced pledges were $1.8 billion. To the best of our calculation today, we heard announcements fresh today of $3.4 billion. That takes us rather over $5 billion for recovery. And that's why I thank you for the generous response. The conference hoped to raise the stated $3.2 billion for the initial first two years of national recovery plans. That would deal with reinforcing decimated health systems, water and sanitation, and infrastructure development, among others. The new money comes in addition to other in-kind donations of support and technical assistance. If we take all these different forms of support together and we leverage what all the wide range of partners across governments, private sector, philanthropy, UN organizations, NGOs, communities, what everyone said, I think there's a very, very good uh, spirit and goodwill uh, around the, re- the recovery. Dr. Margaret Chan is Director General of the World Health Organization. We are very encouraged to hear the commitment and the pledges made by so many countries, development partners, civil society and the private sector. We also have heard compelling expressions of need from the Ebola-affected countries and the inspiring commitments and pledges of support, as I said before, We need to continue the course. WTO, on our part, we already have more than a thousand staff deployed in the three countries. WTO will maintain and enhance staff presence until the job are done. Getting to zero, staying at zero, and early recovery, both are important. In April, the World Bank announced it would provide $650 million over 12 to 18 months to help the three countries with recovery, a figure not included in this tally. Earlier at the conference, AU Chairperson Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe called for the three worst affected countries to also have their debts of more than $3 billion cancelled. We reiterate the African Union's call for debt cancellation for Guinea Liberia and Sierra Leone, as this will free up the country's resources and allow them to focus on investing in recovery and in building resilience to ensure that they can effectively address any potential resilience of the virus. We also call for the increased social responsibility on the part of the private sector particularly those companies engaged in the extraction of natural resources. NGOs immediately called for pledges to be honoured, while the World Health Organization warned that complacency on the part of the international community is the biggest threat to ending the outbreak and moving into early recovery. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York.
The 19 leaders of the countries within the single currency euro met through the night to try to save Greece's place in the eurozone. Six months of discussion have been unable to find a deal between Greece and its creditors in order for the country to receive new economic bailout money. Reports from Brussels say a draft compromise has been put to the emergency summit, but no details have emerged so far. Jack Parrick reports. The leaders going into the meetings here in Brussels know full well that if they don't come to an agreement, Greece will be forced out of the euro. Angela Merkel is the German chancellor. There will be no agreement at any price. I know everyone is on the edge. But we have to ensure that the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, namely for the future of Greece, as well as for the Eurozone as a whole and the principles of our cooperation. The bailout package being discussed includes pension reforms, VAT increases, military spending cuts and budget targets for Greece. It would provide the country with 53 billion euro and allow the European Central Bank to increase liquidity, meaning the Greek banks could reopen after 13 days closed and the Greek people only being able to access 60 euro per day. But the Greek government doesn't want to accept austerity. Alexis Tsipras is the Greek Prime Minister. I'm here ready for an honest compromise. We owe that to the peoples of Europe who wants Europe united and not divided. We can reach an agreement tonight if all parties want it. In a draft proposal penned by the finance ministers of the Eurozone, a five-year temporary suspension from the euro is included. It's thought Germany and Finland consider this to be a viable option, but the French president, François Hollande, has ruled it out. European Council President Donald Tusk says the Eurozone leaders will remain locked in talks until a conclusion on Greece is found. The question is whether that conclusion will result in Greece exiting the euro. Jack Parrick, SABC News, Brussels. The battle for the control of South Africa's largest trade union federation gets underway later today. Kosato's ordinary members will have a say on the divisions that have paralyzed the union for the past three years at the two-day Special National Congress. The Special National Congress is not the first for Kosato, but this one is historic as it is the first to be called by affiliates. Busi Chimombe looks back at some of the events that led to the Congress. It took 14 months for Kosato to convene the Special National Congress, demanded by a third of its affiliates. The affiliates were motivated by the suspension of then-General Secretary Zulinzi Mavavi for an office affair. Already it was clear that they had lost confidence in Kosato President Dumotlamini's leadership, but they were in the minority in the all-powerful Central Executive Committee. Kosato dragged its heels over the SNC, citing concerns over logistics and money. Echoed most recently by Acting General Secretary of COSATU, Begin Chalin Chali. The first time that we are having two congresses in one year at the cost of about 12 million rand, excluding the cost uh, to the affiliates. And the differences between the congresses is only four months, which we regarded to be really a waste of money, but we have to comply with the constitution. A court order finally settled the matter in June this year, forcing Kosatu to commit to hold the SNC this Monday and Tuesday. In the meanwhile, Numsa, who led the call for the Congress, and Vavi were out of the picture, expelled in November 2014 and February 2015 respectively. 
NUMSA, for its 2013 December Special National Congress resolutions that included recruiting beyond its traditional base and VAVI for refusing to endorse their expulsion. NUMSA tried to be part of the Congress via the courts but lost. It is around these issues that the battle lines are drawn and the first salvo will be over the adoption of the agenda. Kosati Deputy President Zingiswalosi. The political commission was convened and met and discussed what is it that it thinks are the issues that would be underlining the unity and cohesion of the federation. Indeed, it was not an easy work to do because those that wanted this congress were not there to tell us why they felt that there is a problem in the federation. But those that are in the federation had to find a way of saying, when we go to this congress, what is it that we're going to discuss under unity and cohesion? And of course, as Pelong as this in Donkey, there are a lot of things that we can discuss in relation to the unity of this federation. Kosato has made it clear that the topics for discussion are unity and cohesion and leadership. But the other side wants to elect new leaders and discuss Vavi's expulsion. But Kosato has remained adamant that elections cannot be held because they're not prepared for them and Vavi and Numsa can only appeal their expulsion at an ordinary congress to be held in November. The discussions on the official agenda include the lack of solidarity within, abuse of the concept of autonomy of affiliates, using the courts to resolve internal differences and the creation of factions. However, Food and Allied Workers Union General Secretary Katishi Masemula says they are determined to turn this Congress into an elective one. The modern set of affiliates that petitioned the Santo president to convene this uh, Congress have the right to uh, raise agenda points, and they've raised these agenda points in their letters of petition, and that includes uh, leadership elections. Uh, and that issue we will be raising, and we will raise it from the floor, because that's uh, within our right as far and certainly as uh, the affiliates that uh, have called for this Congress. Until two weeks ago, it was not clear if FAO and other unions will attend the SNC as they were boycotting the Central Executive Committee meetings since December 2014 in solidarity with NUMSA. Director for the Center for the Study of Democracy, Stephen Friedman, says at heart this meeting will tackle the deep-seated issue of where the voice and mandate of COSATU resides. Now the problem with COSATU over the last year or so has been that all the decisions have been taken by a body called the Central Executive Committee, which only consists of the senior officials of unions. It doesn't consist of delegates elected by union members. Uh, and the message which is being sent to the COSATU leadership is that the union members want to say in this. Now, clearly, whatever, that's the way a democratic organization runs, whatever the union members decide uh, needs to be the policy of COSATU. But uh, my sense is that whatever they decide, uh, that the majority of Kusatu members want a united federation. They don't want two union federations. About 2,500 delegates representing all Kusatu affiliates will converge on Midrand's Gallagher estate. This is where they met in 2012, where already divisions were apparent. But instead of allowing the rank and file to decide, a gentleman's agreement was brokered, returning all national leaders uncontested. This Congress could expose where majority support lies, with Lamini's faction or that in support of Vavi and Numsa. I'm Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg. And that report by Busi Chimombe. Our headlines up next with Onilin Zinzi.
Burundi postpones presidential elections. Boko Haram attacks a prison in the southern Niger town. This in attempts to free fellow members being held there. And Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe reiterates the African Union's call for debt cancellation for the three countries worst affected by the Ebola crisis in West Africa. Channel African News. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Call to enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Leader of South Africa's main opposition party, the DA, Musi Maimani, has questioned how President Jacob Zuma can have a fancy house that has cost taxpayers over 19 million US dollars while there are South Africans still without houses. Speaking in Chatsworth, south of Durban, Maimani hit out at the ANC-led government saying living conditions have have become harder and less safe for most people today. He urged party supporters to ensure that there's change in the country, starting with the local government elections in 2016. Zanele Butelezi reports. DA supporters in blue party t-shirts gave their leader Musi Maimani a warm welcome at the Woodhouse Community Hall in Chatsworth. This was his last stop after having spent the weekend visiting Inanda, Howick, Peter Moritzburg and Ilovo. Maimani used his tour to lambast the ruling ANC for the conditions under which many South Africans are living. He says it's getting harder and less safe for most people. I don't know about you, but it would seem we are paying more for things and getting less. We are running out of money. For most people, before the end of the, of the month is already the end of the money. For most people, you can realize that we live in a South Africa where it's getting harder, it's getting less safer, and more seriously, more and more people are losing their jobs. My man says his true enemy is not the ANC, but poverty, unemployment, and the fact that race still determines where one ends up in life. He says the country's future will be secure with a change in government. If we love South Africa and we want a future for South Africa, we need change. We need change from this current government that is committed to protecting President Zuma instead of serving the people of this country. We need change to make sure that parliament works not disrupted by people who are wearing berets and pretending to represent the poor. 
He vowed to ensure that President Zuma pays back the money spent on non-security upgrades at his private Nkandla home. What is happening in Nkandla is sheer corruption. And I'm sorry, if anyone wants to fight with me, all I want to say to them is this, is that the president is never going to get away with spending South Africans' money in Nkandla. We are going to make sure the president pays back every cent that was stolen there. As political parties prepare for the 2016 local government elections, Maimane urged DA supporters to ensure that the party wins key municipalities, including the Eteguini Metro. We say as part of Vision 2029, our dream as the DA is to create an economy that is growing, that is able to create work opportunities for all South Africans. Ours is to say, you can't, you don't need to be politically connected to get a job. We must make it possible that more and more South Africans can create work. Viva DA, viva. You see, you cannot say that you are completely free if all you have is the right to vote, but you have no right to feed your family. He also spoke about the police service, saying some of the officers are good, but there are also those who are bad. However, Maimane places more blame at the doorstep of the National Police Commissioner, Ria Piecha, saying she's not a qualified police officer. He says the best in the job must be hired if the police service is to work effectively with the communities in combating crime. Zanele Butelezi, Durban. Burundi's presidential elections have been postponed by nearly a week after UN officials warned the president's decision to seek a third term could spark an explosion of violence. To find out more on this, our correspondent in Burundi, Bernard Bankukira, joins us on the line from the capital, Bujumbura. Good morning, Bernard, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Yes, good morning. Now, Bernard, when are the elections going to be held now since, since the postponement? Now, the, 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 president, the president's office now announced that uh, the election, which was slated for uh, July 15th, has been moved to uh, July 21st. So six days, additional days, have been awarded to the campaigners or to the can- candidates to uh, allegedly to, 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 to run the campaigns. Because when we talked to uh, the, the spokesman of the president, uh, he said that this, additional time has been awarded uh, so as to allow the opposition leaders who claimed that uh, their security is not assured, that they cannot run the campaigns. Um, he said that uh, this time would help them to run the campaign, but uh, it would be difficult to imagine whether the opposition can be satisfied by this additional time, because six days while the regional leaders uh, advised that the election should be moved for two weeks. So it's a little bit less significant. Now, Bernard, how did the opposition parties react to this development? We, until now, we haven't asked, we haven't consulted the, 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 the major opposition leader uh, who, who came second during the previous elections, I mean the parliamentary elections which took place on June 29th, but uh, one of uh, the leaders, uh, Charles Ndtije, one of the uh, leaders, he and Burundi opposition leaders, said that uh, this additional uh, time is meaningless because uh, to add six days doesn't mean that all the questions, the, 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 the questions, uh, the problems have been solved.
Uh, he mentioned especially, for example, the summament of the youth wing of the ruling party, the youth wing of parties, the return of the refugees, the reopening of the shut media, and so on. So, uh, the six days, according to this uh, leader, is uh, it doesn't mean anything. They cannot allow them to to, to run the campaigns and participate in the elections. What what is, is is the president's aim with regards to the six days? As you say, it's not enough, and uh, there have been calls for for two week postponement. What are the reason reasons behind it? Apart from uh, more time given to opposition parties to do their campaigning and to feel safer, what exactly is he trying to do, or to what message is he sending across? The you mean the president of the public? The president, yes. Uh-huh. Now. The only reason advanced by the president's office is that he wants to allow the opposition campaigners not to run the campaigns because they said they claimed that they, they do not have enough time to to, to to run the campaigns. They said they didn't do the campaign. So the only reason behind this postponement is, according to the president's office, the spokesman of the president, he said that the only reason is to allow the campaigners to run the campaigns as recommended, I mean as recommended by the East African Heads of State Summit had on July 6th. This is the only reason. They, they just want to comply with the recommendations of the EAC Heads of State Summit. And Bernard, finally, before I let you go, what has the reaction been from the people on the ground? Uh, the people on the ground until now, they cannot say openly that they agree or they do not agree because... Uh, you know, here in Burundi, uh, most of the ordinary people fear to talk to media. Uh, we don't know, but uh, if you talk to them underground, now they say, ah, this is meaningless. They don't say, okay, this is a problem between the politicians. Uh, it's up to them. But uh, if you, for example, we, we, we talk to some, uh, to some opposition members, I mean those who are not leaders, opposition members, and opposition militants, they say, ah, this is meaningless. They don't see anything. They, 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 they don't see anything about uh, anything that might improve from this postponement. To them, uh, it seems meaningless. Bernard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome. That was our correspondent in Burundi, Bernard Bankukira, joining us on the line from the capital, Bujumbura. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Robben Island Museum in South Africa says it will soon embark on a nationwide initiative to search for all former political prisoners who were incarcerated on the island as part of giving an opportunity to struggle icons to tell their stories. The island CEO Sbong Senim Kize has disclosed this at the official launch of a book titled Triumph of the Human Spirit by Ravonia trialist Ahmed Kathrada. The book covers an estimated 300 visits Kathrada made to the island, including those in his capacity as a senior tour guide. Mkize says the book is dedicated to all political inmates who were jailed on what is now an international heritage site. The launch of the book by Ahmed Kathrada 
Foundation was meant to coincide with the 52-year anniversary of the Lilisley Farm Raid, as well as Nelson Mandela Month commemorations. Abongwe Gobokana reports. Former Robben Island prisoners, politicians and other dignitaries gathered at the Nelson Mandela Gateway in Cape Town for the launch of Ahmed Katrada's book, which described his estimated 300 visit to the island since 1995. His guests over the years included heads of state, school children, celebrities and many other rich and famous personalities. Uncle Keith, as he is affectionately known amongst his comrades, friends and family members, recently took charge of the visit by Cuban Five in the country's shores. Of all the visitors Katrada led to the island as senior tour guide, one that keeps haunting him is a leaky girl who has since passed away due to an incurable illness. So it's difficult for me to assess all these visitors, but the one that made the biggest impact on me was this little girl, whose picture appeared here, Michelle Brits, because uh, she was dying of leukemia and she had these two wishes, to, rub, uh, to visit Robben Island and to visit Medieval. So I took her around Robben Island. She knew she was dying, by the way. And uh, then I asked Mediva whether I could bring her to the office, to his office, to his house, to to see him, because that was uh, her dying wish. And uh, typical of Madiba, he said, no, uh, we can't give so much trouble to her. Let's rather go to her. The Robben Island Museum says the book is also dedicated to all ex-political prisoners. It will soon embark on a nationwide initiative to search for the struggle stalwarts who were incarcerated on the island as part of giving them an opportunity to tell their stories. The island CEO Sbongisene Mkiza says it is important that the museum keeps in touch with all ex-political convicts. For us as the museum, this is a very special moment and we would like to also encourage other ex-political prisoners to start looking at the records of what they've been doing since 1994 or even recording uh, their experiences on the island so that we've got at least a vaguely complete picture because we might never have a complete picture like we are saying now with regards to the book itself. There might be some things that unfortunately had to be omitted. So ours uh, is just as a museum to say we encourage these kinds of projects and our council is committed to providing support. Up next, our economics update. Good morning. My name is Tabiso Lohoku. Two tankers have arrived at the eastern Libyan port of Ariga to lift 1.5 million uh, barrels of crude. Another tanker is expected to lift 600,000 barrels of oil from the eastern Brega port. No liftings are expected in the next days at the Zuatina port, also located in the east due to an ongoing pipeline blockage by locals demanding state jobs. Tensions that have been simmering within South Africa's biggest trade federation, Kosatu, for over three years are expected to boil over publicly on Monday. 
The two-day special National Congress of the Labour Federation kicks off in Midrand outside Johannesburg with over 2,500 delegates expected to attend. The meeting is convened at the request of a third of the Labour Federation's affiliates who say they are unhappy at the current leadership and its inability to implement programmes agreed to at the last ordinary National Congress in December 2012. Busi reports. Right from the start, the meeting is likely to be contentious. The factions within COSATU differ on what the meeting's agenda should be. The unions that requested the SNC are determined that this should be where a new leadership is elected. COSATU's dominant faction and the president's Dumoglamini are committed to engagements on principles and values, saying no preparations have been made for elections. Other issues that will prove controversial could be the possible calling for the reinstatement of former General Secretary Zuelin Zimavavi, and Union NUMSA. The presence of Kosato's rank and file will give a reflection of where the real support in Kosato lies. Busichimombe, SABC News, Johannesburg. Africa's largest steelmaker, Acelomital South Africa, has asked the government to impose a 10% import duty on steel and in return it may offer shares to black empowerment partners. Shares in the unit of the world's largest producer of steel are trading around their lowest levels in more than a decade and the company has said South Africa's high labor costs, poor rail infrastructure and slowing economy have forced it to consider cutting back operations and jobs. The steel baron Lakshmi Mittal was in South Africa last month, where he briefed President Jacob Zuma's government on the challenges in the steel industry and asked for intervention to counter cheap Chinese imports. The state of Zimbabwe's roads is so appalling that motorists say they have to drive like Hollywood stuntmen. The challenges range from trucks submerged in water-filled craters right in the central business district to gruesome road accidents, with motorists having to navigate hazards such as these every day. Motorists must pay tolls to Zinara, but a report delivered to Parliament last month by Zimbabwe's Auditor General Mildred Chiri revealed widespread abuse of funds in the road authority. Egypt's central bank has held the Egyptian pound steady at 7.73 per dollar for the third straight foreign exchange auction after depreciation earlier this month. The currency strengthened on the parallel market. The central bank says it has offered $40 million and sold $37.5 million. The U.S. dollar trades at 12.42 in South Africa. 976 Botswana, 772 to the Zambian Guacha, 064 British pound, 089 euro, gold 1162 dollars, platinum 1023 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil 57 dollars 70 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lohoku. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. Now sports update this hour, starting off with rugby news. Kenya National Sevens players have thrown their 2016 Africa Olympics qualification preparation 
into a spin after declaring that they will not report to training until the three-month salary and bonus areas are settled. According to long-serving team manager Steve Sewe, Kenya Rugby Union, the KRU, has also failed to provide basic training facilities required to meet the high-performance demands for a side that is aiming to qualify for a maiden Olympics, including food, supplements and a gymnasium. Sewe accused the national body for failing to secure players' contracts, leaving them with the choice of seeking alternative means of survival instead of rugby in what is a second revolt against administration by the team in recent times. Coach Henneke Meyer says he's pleased with the box performance in the match against the World 15 at Newlands in Cape Town. The box scored seven tries to the World team's one, and the final score was 46-10. Meyer says the box will draw inspiration from the victory and hopes they can carry the momentum forward into the upcoming rugby championship. Box captain Victor Medfield says it's a job well done, although they were nervous. Yes, I must say I was pretty nervous coming into the game. I think uh, we worked very hard. Uh, we did a lot of fitness in the last two, three weeks. So I was worried about the guys. Uh, they probably felt all the hard training, but um, we've got a mission in front of us, in front of us, and uh, we've got bigger things that we're aiming at. But um, yeah, I think very well done again. Guys coming back from injuries, John got through the game, Pat Lambie, Quibus Reinach got through it, and um, some youngsters, the two guys that got their first games really played very well. So um, there was a few mistakes, and uh, there's still a lot to work on, but um, I think we'll take this first game. And on to football news, the South African national under-20 women's team beat neighbours Botswana 8-1 in the 2016 FIFA Women's World Cup qualifier in Dobsonville, south of Johannesburg on Sunday. Basitsana will go into the second leg clash in Khaburoni in two weeks' time with a comfortable lead. South Africa is almost guaranteed to meet the winners between Tanzania and Zimbabwe in the next round. The third and the final round of qualifiers will be played in early November. And in tennis news, Serena Williams says she can handle the pressure of heading to the U.S. Open, chasing a first-calendar Grand Slam after winning the sixth Wimbledon title. The 33-year-old American beat Spain's Gabini Muguruza 6-4 and 6-4 at Wimbledon to take possession of all four major titles. It gave her the second Serena Slam of her career, but she can break new ground in New York next month. Oh, man, it is really a great feeling. I... Um... <clears throat> You know, I, it just, the moment is still setting in a little bit, and I'm just really excited about it because I didn't want to talk about this Serena Slam, and I honestly wouldn't have thought last year after winning the U.S. Open I would win the Serena Slam at all. Um, it's super exciting. I just knew I wanted to win Wimbledon this year. Of all the Grand Slams, I just it was the one that I hadn't won in a while, and so I was like, I really want to win Wimbledon, and, you know, it happened, so... Just amazing. It feels really, really good. And in golf news, Ricky Fowler has won the Aberdeen Asset Management Scottish Open for his first European Tour title and first success outside of the USA. The young American finished on 12th under par at Galen for one stroke win, the ideal preparation for the Open Championship. Nick Dye reports. Fowler's been influenced by Phil Mickelson winning the Scottish Open prior to success at Muirfield. 
He's now in a position to follow suit. He's won in a similar style to his victory at the Players' Championship. He birdied three of the last four holes and hit a superb approach to tap-in range at the last to edge ahead of the pack. Matt Kuchar had already finished on 11 under. Raphael Jacqueline matched Fowler for precision at the last, almost holding his approach, and his tied second place earns a spot at the Open, along with Daniel Brooks and Rickard Kahlberg. Mark Warren's closing 64 means he's the top Scot in fourth place. Fowler could move into the world's top five as a result of such a prestigious victory. And finally, defending champion Mark Marquez has won the German MotoGP ahead of Honda teammate Dani Pedrosa. It was the Spaniard's first victory since the second race of the season at Austin in April, but he's sixth in six years at the Sexnering circuit. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour, Tanzania's ruling party picks its presidential candidate and donors pledge over $3 billion for Ebola recovery plan. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Matebula, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930 or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is P-Square with a song titled E No Easy.